It's the Sports Pro Podcast, and it's live. Hello, welcome to this special edition of the Sports Pro Podcast, the special wrap-up recap session for day one of Sports Pro Live 2021. Hope everyone's enjoyed the day if you're joining us live. Uh, hope everyone who is listening on the podcast as per usual uh, has had a chance to catch up with some of the sessions on demand. It has been a packed day, lots to talk about, and we're going to take about the next uh, half an hour or so to just run over some of the key themes, some of the talking points, and uh, some of the lessons that we can all take into day two and beyond. Um, we're going to hear from a couple of the sessions as we go through, but for the most part, you're going to be hearing from our two guests. Sports Pro Deputy Editor Sam Carp is here. Hi, Sam. Hi, Owen. Nice to see you. Uh, usually for these wrap-up pods, I only get to hear your voice. So, uh, yeah, it's good to be in the same room with you, virtually at least. It is for now. We'll, we'll see how we fare over the next uh, next little while. Uh, also joining us, we promised you special guests. We've brought you Seven League Consulting Partner, Charlie Beale. Make of that what you will, but it's great to have you with us, Charlie. Thanks you very much, um, Owen. I'm, I'm excited to be doing this live because, of course, I never um and ah, and you never have to cut any of my uh, talk out. So um, the live experience will be no different to traditional yep. podcasting. Exactly. Everyone will get to see just how professional and exemplary an operation this always is. Um, <laughs> the unusual thing this time as well is that you will be able to interact with us via the Swapcard platform. That is if you are joining us in the live session. You can try if you're listening to the podcast uh, on Thursday or later. You won't get very far, but you can you can give it a bash. Um, but yeah, do keep those questions coming and uh, keep populating the chat and and any comments that you want to share. Uh, if you keep it civil, I'm sure we can engage as well. Um, guys, where should we start? Why don't we start at the top? We uh, began the day with the session uh, with our own John Abraham was talking to the ECB chief executive, Tom Harrison, and to Derek McCourt from Microsoft about their partnership, uh, trying to upskill members of the digital cricket community or uh, digitally upskill members of the cricket community. I'm not quite sure how I wanted to construct that sentence, but um, it was a really interesting session about um, about the connections between grassroots and, and and elite sport, about the way of kind of addressing fans right across the board, um, and you know just kind of looking at the sport as a whole. I, we can we can go into some of our thoughts on that in just a moment, but let's hear a a little bit from the session. Uh, I think we've got a bit of Tom answering some questions from John about the fan journey this summer. Well, look, uh, I think uh, one of the things that you, you quoted at the start is that we've got 11 and a half million fans in this country. We have close to 2 billion fans of the game uh, internationally. It strikes me and it has done for some time that uh, English cricket is very successful at accessing a certain proportion of that market, but uh, certainly not uh, as, as great a proportion as perhaps we would like, which is one of the reasons why we've developed uh, new ideas. Uh, it's why our, uh, our strategy is uh, called Inspiring Generations, and it's a bold and ambitious 
strategy uh, which is designed to uh, to ensure the game remains relevant for uh, the future. And that's not just for those cricket fans out there who I, I'm sure, uh, like me, are huge fans of test cricket and the longer formats uh, of the game and the more traditional formats, but also uh, the absolute requirement for us uh, to create a journey for fans coming into the game for the first time and to uh, to challenge some of those uh, long-held views about cricket, which is complication, the time it takes to play, um, and the accessibility, the general accessibility of the sport, uh, which are all areas that we are we're on the front foot addressing um, through things like the hundred, which is our new competition, uh, which is a brand new format for cricket, uh, and will be launched in July this year, uh, which seeks to to do two things: to to take existing fans on a, on, a, on a new journey within the game, uh, to broaden that audience into diverse and younger communities of fans for the future, but also to create a growth asset for cricket on a global basis. And all of those things are uh, we're very excited about. We're excited about the impact that the 100 can make, um, not just this year. Obviously, this year is going to be uh, uh, tricky with everything that we're facing through the pandemic, but in the years ahead, um, it can really carve out a, a new niche for cricket fans globally to support and underwrite uh, cricket's interests over the next uh, generation or two. Um, I mean, you, you touched upon this summer uh, and obviously the, the, the 100 launching as well. Um, you know, what type of challenge does this summer represent for, for you guys? I mean, obviously in the wake of the pandemic with the 100, but also from the, the broader commitments you've made about growing the sport and, you know, the you know, journey and, and sort of relationship with the fans that you've just referenced, you know, the multifaceted, I'm sure, but it'd be great to sort of hear more of, from your perspective as sort of how, how that challenge may well play out. Yeah, and, and look, John, there's no question it's a daunting challenge right now sitting in, uh, you know, towards the end of April with the whole international men's and women's calendar against uh, ahead of us. Uh, we've got uh, at uh, some points we're going to have eight uh, separate individual uh, international teams operating in the UK uh, this summer. So that's a, that's a huge logistical challenge. Um, it's a massively exciting year for the women's game, uh, not just the, the obviously the, the fact that the 100 is a, a men's and a women's tournament, the first uh, tournament to do so in our sport, uh, but also because uh, we've got a, a fascinating international uh, diet of uh, fixtures for the women's team to get into in the, in the run-up towards 2022, which is probably the biggest year that uh, women's cricket's ever had with the Commonwealth Games, uh, two global ICC tournaments, and, and for us and Australia, an Ashes, an Ashes series as well. In the men's game, it's any year where India is inbound is, is just so exciting for us. Um, and again, we've just been in India um, being taught a lesson on how to play cricket in their conditions, and uh, we're hoping to uh, reverse the tables over here this summer. We're, but again, it's a it's a a really uh, lip smacking uh, kind of uh, contest which we're awaiting. Uh, a lot of uh, different variables uh, and a lot of challenges ahead to ensure that with all the challenges India's facing as a country right now with um, with the pandemic that we operate uh, very closely with BCCI and ensure that um, all of those plans come together. But that we've got Pakistan, we've got Sri Lanka inbound, we've got the World Test Championship kicking it all off in a few weeks' time, uh, which is a test match between New Zealand and and India. Uh, so it, it is a it is a um, yeah, it's an exciting year ahead with the domestic calendar already underway and going very very well. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. 
lot on the menu there for the ECB. And I think one of the things that is really striking about those comments is just how diverse a, I want to say diverse a fan base, because in, in some respects, that's one of the issues that the ECB is trying to address, but how diverse a range of interests is, is trying to service um, over the course of this summer. And it's, you know, that that is part of its own challenge, Sam, uh, going into the launch of the 100 especially. Um, it will be very interesting to actually watch that rather than be talking about it. Um, <laughs> but what, what were some of your reflections on that session? Yeah, I thought it was interesting what he was saying about English cricket being very successful at accessing a certain proportion of the sport's um, global fan base, but not quite as much as they would like. You know, you think of the sort of typical cricket fan in England, you think of a middle-aged white man with his legs crossed, a straw hat, a pint in one hand, his arm outstretched over the seat next to him. Um, and that's fine. I think, you know, the ECB acknowledges that those core fans are still a key part of its audience. And Harrison did acknowledge that during the session today. And, you know, obviously they're still going to be spending a lot of money on the game, but it's also fine, I think, to want to broaden that audience out um, a bit. So if that means through the hundreds, then that's going to be interesting. You know, I think the message is quite clearly that the hundreds is there for existing fans if they want it, but it's there primarily to hopefully break down some of the barriers that can exist for people who want to sort of gain an in game more of an interest in cricket. Um, so, you know, it's already got broadcasters to show it. It's already brought some new brands in. So it might not necessarily be getting the overwhelming support of traditional fans, but the model seems to have convinced a few people that it's going to work on the corporate side. Yeah, Charlie, what, what are your thoughts on the 100? Is it, it's a fascinating proposition from an industry perspective because it is kind of, it's, it's been created almost in a bespoke way to, um, I want to say to meet the needs of the audience, but to meet, to, to fit the kind of gap that it's got to fill. I mean, one of the things that we'll get onto is a, a, in a bit is, uh, is attention spans and, and formats and, and all that type of stuff. But, you know, there, there is obviously a need to get it out on free to air and it addresses some of the issues with scheduling that, that some of the existing formats have. Um, and then kind of the presentation has been not trailing that, but, but accompanying that as, as it's evolved as a, as a concept. But what are you, how do you feel about something that has kind of emerged through market research that fans, you know, need to be evangelists for? You need to have a section of the fan base who are evangelists for it. Um, but the, the, a lot of the debate has been happening in public before we've actually seen uh, any, of the, any of the cricket actually take place. As you say, Owen, it's been a long time in the making. I think I spoke with um, Tony Singh at the Sports Pro OTT conference in Madrid back in 2019. And even then, um, the 100 had been trailed for quite some time. As you say, a lot of research has gone into producing a format that um, that has a time length that is that's friendly to broadcasters, that um, is designed to appeal in both the look and presentation to younger audiences, and also designed to simplify some of the complexities of the game. Um, uh, it, it's, it's not one universal support from uh, cricket purists. Um, and I think those of us interested in what it's going to be like as an entertainment product um, are champing it a bit to actually see what, it, what it's like. Um, I, I wonder 
um, the degree to which it's presentation over substance, um, and and I, and I hope to be proved wrong. Um, I'd like to see um, the hundred pushing the boundary in terms of sort of uh, some of the new innovations around interactivity and 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 fan involvement in in a new sport uh, format. They have the the luxury um, of being able to rewrite the rules. Um, and, you know, I think some of the fact that, um, you know, th there are legacy interests in, in the English cricket game meant that um, the ECB sort of needed to do something completely new um, to, to kind of get away from some of the, the, the constraints of, I don't know, counties or, um, you know, the vested interest in the game. Um, so I, I think we all need to see a few games played. Um, uh, and then the audience will do what the audience does. There's always a, a thing in our in our world. Um, you can run as much market research as you want to, but until you see the data of audience behaviour, you don't really get a true picture of what people want or don't want. Absolutely, Sam. One of the interesting things that came out of that session, and I think this has been the piece that ECB has been trying to put back in, I guess, since the since this format was announced because it was obviously it was a commercial proposition first of all they were going to have this new franchise league to, to drive a bit more uh, commercial interest and revenue they, they have now over time as they've kind of made sense of what the thing is is going to be they've, they've tried to look for ways to, to put it back into that very broad uh, cricket community that, uh, that that was outlined at the start um, and you know connected to this partnership with Microsoft that that um, most of the session was actually about, even though we haven't talked very much about it, was this uh, this new app that is going to engineer rules for people um, based on how much time they have and how many players they have to play a game of cricket, which I thought was a really interesting way of kind of um, addressing where the concept fits, where the format fits in relation to the rest of the sport. Yeah, for sure. And it was interesting throughout that session, actually, um... Harrison was kind of talking about how he described the, the ECB as still being kind of the foothills of its data journey. Um, and kind of, I guess that kind of plays into it in a sense. He was talking about how as an organization that traditionally they've had kind of a fairly distant relationship um, with their fans based on the fact that they're sort of corporate governance structures, which don't kind of support that in the sense that, you know, they don't own the stadiums that they play their matches in. They don't sell tickets directly. Um, so kind of moving into a place now where that direct consumer relationship is like a really clear objective of everything that they're doing. Um, so, yeah, I guess that kind of plays into that in a sense. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that kind of data side of things, the direct consumer side of things is something that it's not just the ECB is going to be thinking about, but sports organizations more broadly. Speaking of which, Charlie, your session, you were looking at content distribution, but you were also uh, involved with one of the guys behind fan-controlled football. Um, mm. And there was a good deal of discussion on on formats, on what fans perhaps want from sport going into the 2020s, um, on the relationship between media and, uh, and participation and play and the rules and all the rest of it. Um, what were what were some of the key takeaways for you from, from that session? Well, the thing that linked all the people on the session, AC Milan, FIBA and fan-controlled football, is that they're all very active on Twitch. And so I think there was a there was a strong 
um, link between uh, all of them seeing a trend in content consumption away from um, certainly in the perspective of younger audiences uh, leaning back and enjoying the content uh, uh, versus a sort of newfound expectation of being part of or interacting with content um, and there was some speculation about whether that was um, impacted by an audience that's grown up gaming um, and the fan controlled football format is really interesting because it sort of takes gaming um, and, and the first principles of gaming and applies it to a sports uh, concept so um, uh, for those of you not familiar with it it's it, it allows um, fans of the sport using an extension that they built on Twitch to call uh, the, the plays that happen um, and it's an American football league um, but it's a much more condensed game one hour games Fans can accrue uh, fan IQ as they make decisions that are either good decisions or bad decisions, and then they have um, uh, greater weighting of, of their votes in future decisions uh, according to their performance. It's a very gamified, uh, lean-in, interactive kind of experience. Um, you've also got the likes of AC Milan doing interactive um, press conferences with their managers where fans can you know submit questions to to the manager and have them answered directly um and, and FIBA distributing their competitions in new and interesting ways uh, by allowing their their games to be co-streamed um by creators on twitch so it's 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 a sort of giving away of control of the product in in all three of the cases you're kind of making allowing fans to make decisions on outcomes or um, have a closer relationship than they ever would uh, with with their favorite football club or even uh, rebroadcast um, a traditional television product from the comfort of their own bedroom in their own language to their own fans uh, and I think that's that's a kind of interesting uh, trend across all three of them. Yeah, what what are we seeing here? Is it? I mean, um, you know, the gamification of games is is one thing, but it feels like it's a it's a kind of um, yeah. You said giving away ownership, which I think was a, was an interesting way of of looking at it. What are, what's what's the deeper deeper trend here? So I think the deeper uh, trend is that uh, audiences expect to be in control or a part of content that they're consuming. Um, they expect to have some kind of impact on it or the ability to consume it alongside someone else. Um, that that we've seen for some time. You know, we've seen people developing watch party capabilities, interactive polling and chat. Um, and you know, fan controlled football takes it to the next level of actually fans having an um, impact on the outcome or flow of the game. Um, you know, obviously, Formula E's fan boost concept has been uh, around for a number of years. Um, the fan-controlled football model is something that I think um, pushes the boundaries. I, I, you know, whether, whether it's applicable to all sports formats or not, um, it's an interesting one. Um, and I think it's it's going to require quite a lot of thinking around how games that aren't a stop start um, might apply it but I think the general trend is um, audiences expect to take part and if you can mm. enable that then um, then you're sort of on the right track help us spread the word about the sports pro podcast 
subscribe, like and share our content on social, join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod, and if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. Um, speaking of audiences taking part, we are uh, very happy to field questions from the virtual floor on Swapcard. So if there is anything that you want us to talk about in the, uh, uh, in the rest of the session, then do feel free to flag that up. Um, Sam, we've got another clip um, on the theme of, of fans and fan interaction with, with teams and in the context a little bit more of, of, of the pandemic uh, from a later session with uh, Raven Jameson, who's the EVP, EVP excuse me, of business operations at the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, she was talking alongside Philadelphia 76ers Katie O'Reilly. Um, what what are we what was what was the discussion that was underway in that session? What are we what are we going to hear about? Yeah, it was a really interesting session. That one actually, they were Casey and uh, Raven were kind of talking about moving their businesses out of the pandemic now. But kind of before they got to that point, they were talking about how both you know that they were responding to the pandemic both at a league and a team's level um and raven had quite an interesting perspective because she had been working in the nba league office um last year and then earlier this year took up took up this role with the milwaukee bucks so she kind of seen it from both sides of things in terms of the insights that they were getting at the league level and then at the team level as well so um the clip that we're about to watch is she's kind of talking about how the league was working with its teams to come up with solutions while fans were locked out of arenas. And, you know, there was that challenge of having to engage with them while, while all that was going on. Wow. There's so many things. So Katie was speaking and in my head I'm thinking, okay, I'd love to chime in on that. Okay. So for those that don't know Teambo, uh, Team Marketing and Business Operations, it's our primary focus to help teams maximize business potential, period, point blank, full stop. So with that, when we talk about really getting into the trenches with our teams, this was the opportunity for us to do that. And Katie mentioned um, the data and research and the pieces that come from the league office and helping teams make informed decisions. But we also relied a lot on teams to help us understand what would move the needle. Um, we were in unprecedented times. And I use the example of the second screen experience that came out of um, COVID and came out of our hiatus, if you will, not having fans in the building. We, you know, worked with teams to understand what a second screen experience could look like as we called the second screen kind of the social television. So that shoulder content that can help engage fans at a deeper level, connect with fans on a deeper level. So we are constantly information flow back and forth. Um, and I would say it was heightened during COVID um, because it had to be. And I think Katie can speak to this we weren't always connecting on the deepest level with our teams to make sure that everything for all 30 teams was was what they needed and and i and i could say that in a way that not that is detrimental but sometimes we're just going 100 miles an hour right but this opportunity we were in in the trenches with our teams because we also had to understand how we could keep our business from a global perspective forced us and pushed us um, and again, I think Katie would, is probably smiling right now. I can't see her, but she's probably saying, yeah, teams push 
the league. And that's what that's what we're supposed to do. That's what Team Bo is kind of that that bridge to help us articulate what is most important to our teams. And now that I'm on the team side, I realize just how important how important that push is and how important that partnership is. And, you know, it's it's just so interesting as we look through what COVID has provided us or what this opportunity has provided us. And I just want to hit a little bit on what Katie mentioned. The collaboration has been heightened sometimes at the team level. And again, I came from the team level before being at the league. You get in your silo and you run full speed towards whatever brick wall is in front of you. But when we talk about partnerships and when we talk about re-engaging with partners and understanding that their objectives prior to COVID weren't the same during COVID. So marketing, digital, partnerships, um, game presentation, all these groups started to come together to operationalize and really make sure, I like the, the term make betters, to ensure that what we were delivering to partners um, was exactly what they needed for the time that they're in. And I think that we're going to continue to do that. So when we look at opportunities, and I'm, um, I am sp speaking specifically about informed business decisions, we were informed that we could work very well together at the team level, breaking down silos to really move the needle to what matters most to partners, to fans, to season ticket members, to our stakeholders. Um, so I see this as a tremendous opportunity and I get excited coming out of where we are right now. This is the Sports Pro Podcast. Good bit to unpack there, um, but it seemed to bring together, Sam, a few, a few of the things we've been talking about already. Um, you know, the communication with fans, the kind of um, the, the, the fan uh, ownership of that relationship, I guess, for one of a, a, a less um, uh, a less ambiguous way of putting it. But also putting it in that context of, of COVID and, and the change that that will have made in the short term and probably for the next couple of years to how fans interact with events. Yeah, for sure. I think it also, first of all, it wasn't kind of a surprise to hear Raven talk about the kind of the collaboration within the NBA. I think if you think about other sports around the world, there's it's quite it's it's hard to imagine the Premier League, for example, sharing business ideas, the, the clubs with each other. Whereas in the NBA, I think that's part of the reason that it is such an innovative forward-thinking league is because when one team comes up with a good idea, they they share it and it's kind of enhances everyone else's business and it's better for the whole in a way. Um, so it sort of wasn't a surprise during this period. I think it was. I think we even covered it back in December. The Washington Wizards rolled out this second screen virtual game day experience, which, as you're saying, goes to, that, goes to some of the stuff that Charlie was talking about in terms of the interactivity. Um, I think that that experience had stuff like chat, stats, um, live streams of the pregame warm-up, and then a number of other teams picked up on on that idea and launched launched experiences of their own. Um, but, yeah, so going forward, it's, it's interesting to think about whether some of those experiences are going to stick around whether you know the the way that fans engage with these teams is, has kind of been fundamentally changed or just sort of temporarily altered and whether now that things are going back to normal those behaviors are also going to revert um but i think something that interesting that also was said later on in that session i think it was casey um casey o'reilly who said it she said that you know it's really forced them to speed up in a way so you talk about that second screen experience, for example, that's kind of that's probably something that they could have been doing before the pandemic for that fan base that they have beyond the core. Um, you know, when you think about setting up that second screen experience, it was perhaps to serve those who 
would traditionally come to their games but couldn't because of because of the restrictions um but if you're looking further ahead that that experience is still going to serve a purpose for for those fans who aren't ever going to be able to come to one of those gate to one of their games and still kind of want to have that that closer interactivity with with the team with a game day um so yeah i think that's sort of one of the learnings I took out of that session is that, you know, while some of these some of these solutions were temporary ones, um, I think quite a few of them will be will lo- will outlast the pandemic as well. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because you know the big cliche that came from, out of the pandemic was that it accelerated everything that was already happening, um, and I think um, you know that that is largely true. But there will inevitably be some kind of regression to the mean as we get back to normal and people are allowed to go back and enjoy sport in a physical way. And it will be interesting to see where that where we kind of net out because I think people are more used to these um, virtual experiences of sport and that arm's length um, and, and the technology that allows you to be sort of closer to a place that you can't physically access. But then at the same time, that technology was being deployed to a product that is suboptimal, you know, um, no crowds, um, you know, and in some and in the early days of the pandemic, no, no games. So, yes, mm. it did force people to innovate. But they were innovating around sort of nothing. Um, and what I'm really looking forward to is the um, ability that so, so we have the shift in, in, in all our expectations and our ability to do things remotely and connect fans um, in, in new, interesting digital ways alongside the kind of the physical products restored to its former glory. And I, I think that will that will be a great day. Mm, absolutely. Um we have another clip, but before we move on to that, uh, we've got a question or a comment here from uh, from Frank Gregory, who says, I'd say one of the themes was around being more data driven in the potential brand partnership sponsorship decisions that a team league may approach a brand with leveraging all of the fan behavior and interest data that is available now. Did you all hear the same general theme? I, I didn't hear the theme that Frank's referring to, um, but I mean, it's it's it's. You don't have to go very far in the sports industry to have someone talk to you about the importance of data. Um, so yes, I think that's a, a theme we're, we're all familiar with. I, I personally prefer the term data informed to data driven. Um, I think uh, if you're driven too much by data uh, and not by the the art as well as the science, then then sometimes the decision making doesn't quite um, net out where you want it to. Mm. Um, we have a question as well for you, Sam, from Tom Bassam, who apparently can't wait until he gets involved tomorrow. Uh, what US franchise do you think has been the most innovative since the start of the pandemic? Cheers, Tom. Um, <laughs> off the top of my <laughs> off, t- <clears throat> off the top of my head with that one, I'm going to say the Golden State Warriors have been quite forward-thinking throughout all of this. Um, you know, I go back to that sort of virtual game day experience. They actually did one even before that. They did one around the NBA draft. Um, in terms of getting fans back into arenas as well, I remember they were kind of ahead of everyone else in terms of some of the research that they were doing um, just to kind of, you know, figure out what would be what would be plausible for this season. And then just today, um, they've also become the first sports team to launch their own NFT collection, which I hear is a trendy thing to do at the moment. So... Uh, Simply by virtue of doing that, and the first team that came to my mind, they're going to they're going to win the award for the most most innovative North American sports franchise for me during this period. 
There you go. The inaugural carpy uh, sports tech innovation goes to the Golden State Warriors. Charlie, you um, you had some thoughts a few weeks ago on, on NFTs. We're going to be hearing a bit about it uh, tomorrow and specifically about the NBA Top Shot project. What do you what do you what do you make of it as a as a category? So um, I think uh, you know there's there's obviously people's opinions on blockchain technology, and I think that can be that's got a lot of use cases in sports across collectibles and ticketing. Um, and um, NFTs are obviously a, a, an application of that technology, and I think have the um, ability to digitize the collectibles market, which I think is no bad thing, and I think it can create new value. Um, my slight concern is in the fact it, it, it's in two areas. One is we've got a very um, um, buoyant speculation market. And so I think the, the, the value um, of, of some of the, the tokens themselves is being driven up and down by speculators. And I, I think um, for a healthy market to emerge, we need to kind of get rid of that specul the speculators and, and, and allow a sort of natural market to evolve. Um, equally, as more and more people in the sports space start developing NFTs, there will be a, a sort of oversupply. Um, and and my my one sort of well, it's not a concern. It's more just something I'm I'm interested to see play out. Is that you know if it's about um, uh, these these tokens being a store of value, then they need to have some kind of scarcity. Um, and so if, for example, a LeBron James dunk is given some kind of uh, accreditation as being you know a numbered item that's that's uh, registered on a blockchain and and ownership of that item can be ascribed to an individual and traded um as such um but the same clip appears on youtube and is also on instagram and is also being played um on the ott service and available uh, to anyone on, on you know uh whatever pirated networks there may be it it sort of creates um yeah, it it undermines the the specialness, the scarcity, uh, uh, as Walter Benjamin would say, the aura of of the item um, in mm. question. So, you know, but it, it doesn't really matter because if if we're entering an age where people believe these things have value, then they have value. Um, but uh, yeah, it just it just I, I I personally don't have the risk profile to be a speculator in this market. <laughs> And I would much rather own the casino than be a participant at one of the blackjack tables. So, uh, would I like to be Dapper Labs in this um, in this moment? Yes, very much. <laughs> That's a fair point. I think, uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see what products emerge, really, because at the moment there is a lot of a lot of noise, and uh, what the signal is, I think we shall see, and, and what the use cases are, because I think, yeah, they do go beyond uh, people moving large amounts of money around. Join the conversation with the Sports Pro community. Follow us on Twitter at Sports Pro. Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media. And connect to Sports Pro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. Sports Pro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Right, we have one more clip, and we uh, couldn't end this without hearing, I think, from, from Eddie Hearn, uh, who I spoke to a little bit earlier today. As ever, lots to talk about and lots to say. Um, we've got a clip here about 
just thinking about the, the, the emerging kind of fan profiles and, and uh, demand for different kinds of content that we've talked about. We've got a clip here about influencer boxing. Difficult because I did one. You know, I did KSI against Logan Paul. Um, the numbers were spectacular. We, we sold out uh, just about the Staples Centre in LA. It was a wild experience. It's, it's not, it's difficult as a hardcore fight fan to fall in love with it, but you can't ignore it and you can't ignore, you know, the power of those people. These people, they're not idiots. You know, Jake Paul and those kind of guys, they might not come across as your cup of tea, but they're outstanding content creators. They're very good promoters and they know how to build an audience. Um, we've just got to be a little bit careful that it doesn't become the norm because we know that these kind of events are attracting good numbers. I mean, sometimes you hear pay-per-view numbers, don't necessarily believe those coming from, you know, a fighter that was in the event, but they are delivering eyeballs, they're, they're creating interest. So boxing's under pressure to make sure that our product is strong. And what that means is the best fight the best. Now that's why I'm sure you'll ask later about Fury against AJ, you know, Errol Spence against Terence Crawford, Devin Haney against Ryan Garcia. You know, these are all fights that we should be seeing consistently across the sport. The good news is, is that if we don't make those fights, we'll see more and more of this social media influence boxer world that really, as a long-term future, is, is not really, I, I think, the answer to maintaining the credibility or the interest within the sport. Print, digital, events, podcasts, Sports Pro. Okay, Sam, did you, you either of you catch that session, Sam? What, what were your thoughts um, on what Eddie had to say through the the half hour or so yeah no i did catch it actually and it was um yeah typically entertaining uh some good lines in there including uh um eddie pretending he didn't know what gen z was uh claiming that joshua fury is going to be bigger than the olympics which i noticed raised a wry smile from you during the session um but yeah there, there were a few things which 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 he said i found quite interesting i found is some of the stuff he said about matrim matrim media um particularly interesting you know when you think about boxing over the last 10 years um maybe more than 10 years I'm sort of plucking a nice round number out of thin air there but you know Matchroom has been really good at building a narrative around its events um around the fighters involved uh even with kind of the limited airtime that they've had to do that so you sort of think now with some of those limitations potentially removed with this creation of Matchroom media it's I think it's going to be really interesting to see um what they're going to be able to do with that added control they have over their content production. Um, so yeah, I think it would be interesting to see what they come up with there. Uh, as it relates to kind of what we said about influencer boxing, uh, it was, again, it was interesting to hear him talk about that because, you know, when you think of Matchroom, you do think about a company that's been really good at building a narrative around its events, uh, which is ultimately what these influencers are doing as well. Um, they're kind of, they're selling a story. Uh, so, yeah, that was kind of one of the one of the interesting takeaways I had, and just from the production side of things as well. Um, you think of events like Joshua Klitschko, which I know you were at in twenty seventeen. Just these really eye catching events from a production standpoint. That's sort of what some of these influencer events have been so far as well, um, in the sense that it's not just the boxing; it's kind of the whole entertainment around it. You're not there to kind of see 
two elite boxers go at it, you're there for kind of the whole event experience itself. So I think he mentioned that Justin Bieber had been one, on one of the Triller, uh, performing one of the Triller events. So you've kind of got this whole show around the show, which I suppose is what the potential of these influencer led um events is going to be so you know while it while it didn't feel like it got his full endorsement from a sort of sporting uh perspective it was it was interesting to hear that you know he's he's been quite impressed with what they've been able to pull off in terms of in, in terms of the, the the show yeah we did talk uh, a bit later charlie about thriller specifically as um the kind of increasingly the, the people who've taken this and, and run with it um, mm. not just uh, not just influencer boxing, but kind of exhibition events. We had Roy Jones and Mike Tyson uh, dusting off their gloves um, last last year. But the point that he made was that there had to be a marriage between the the type of production and and the event, and that he thought that that was something he found quite interesting about the way that Triller had gone about things. Yeah, I, I mean. To me, this is so interesting because as more sports try and do entertainment crossover and as we've got the emergence of creator-led platforms like TikTok uh, and Twitch and YouTube where, where um, stars are being created around their personalities and their audiences, um, you know, the extent to which true competition amongst the very best at a particular discipline is the thing that we're watching or or is it the 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 stories and the characters that we know um and clearly there is the, there there is room for both but i i think you know the point that eddie was making there is that you know whilst you've got that there is an inbuilt interest in seeing two influencers go at each other it's not the best representation of the sport but does mm. that I guess even matter. I mean, you take go to someone like Overtime, who, um, who, you know, were very inflammatory in their early days by saying that, that you know they don't care about live games because it's all about stories and personalities, and we want to uh, we want to own that space. And um, more recently, I guess they've uh, they've raised funds to start creating their own high school basketball league. So it, it, you know, it shows that even even with that storytelling approach, the 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 ownership of live assets and live rights and 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 the creation of competition athletic competition that that matters is still vital so i i would agree with eddie mm -hmm. and i think sam and you know you you kind of hinted at it yourself but there's a, a degree of learning the same lessons again and again but in a different environment particularly when it comes to storytelling and characters because you talk about matchroom and of course um eddie takes over from Barry Hearn on Tuesday, I think, after the end of the World Snooker Championship uh, in Sheffield. You think about the way that snooker and darts have developed. Obviously, boxing's always had this element to it of being personality-driven and you know the, the stories kind of driving the event. But it's an insight that, that Barry Hearn took to these two barroom sports and turned them into big media properties just by saying, well, look, We'll have Steve Davis and Jimmy White. They're they're kind of slightly different characters, and you know all the all the guys who've uh, who've gone through the the world of um, PDC darts in the last twenty years. You could probably say make similar cases for, and it's applying some of that thinking to a new media environment. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, if you even sort of look at the way that Hearn was talking to you earlier, there's kind of a glimmer in, in his eye. You can tell that even just from watching 
these trailer events, he's probably picking up on certain things which um, down the line maybe he'll he'll sort of be able to transfer to a matchroom event, not necessarily um, you know the sporting element, but just kind of the event the event element as well. And you know, if if, if, if there's one thing that matchroom's good at, it's kind of elevating sports that you maybe wouldn't have expected to to become kind of part of the mainstream conversation. But um, as you say, like with, with, with sports like darts, all of a sudden they are. So it would be interesting to see further down the line whether you know what's next for them um, and kind of what they've got up their sleeve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, were there any other highlights, Sam, that, that you picked up on over the course of day one? Um, in terms of highlights, I think more there was kind of a prevailing theme for me throughout the day. Um, that's kind of like the beauty of these virtual events. So, and you don't have to, you're not wedded to a single room. You get to kind of rather than have that awkward two minute walk from the auditorium where you're asking people to move their legs and you're ducking down as you, as you, as you do. So, um, you get to skip around a bit. And I think kind of, um, yeah, the sort of one of the prevailing themes that I found was that while, you know, there is this kind of excitement about things getting back to normal, um, there's also kind of a lot of scenario planning going on as well. Um, it's it's interesting to see how, yeah, it's interesting to see how, you know, people are very much planning for things to open up again, but at the same time, they're not taking anything for granted. Um, so rather than, you know, sort of going all out with plan A, there's now a sort of plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, which, you know, I suppose is absolutely a consequence of, of what's happened over the past 12, 12, 13 months. Yeah. Charlie, anything else that you, you'd pick out? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's that um, realism, Sam, you're, you're right in pointing it out. I think we all hope that this year the big summer return of sport was going to be this huge moment. And actually, um, it's probably going to be a little bit more measured and considered. I, I'm still hoping that uh, we will have a joyous national, international moment around sport in the summer. Um, uh, but it, as you say, it's, it's, it's touched with some, some uh, realism. Yeah. Well, we'll have it someday. <laughs> Let's hope. And we'll be able to do this in person again someday. Um, but yeah, that I think puts a puts a lid on day one of Sports Pro Live 2021. Um, what would you what are you looking forward to tomorrow, guys, Sam? Uh, I think I think I'd probably get in trouble if I didn't give a shout out to our digital editor Tom, who so kindly asked that question earlier. But uh yeah, he's going to be chatting to James Rushton tomorrow. He's the co-chief executive at DAZN. Um, I think he's been in that role for, I think, coming up to a year now. They obviously had that reshuffle towards the end of last year. But um, yeah, they've obviously just done a big domestic media rights deal for Serie A in Italy. Um, reportedly done a deal in the UK. I know that Eddie uh, fielded a question from you earlier and said nothing's confirmed yet. But um yeah, and they're also, you know, one of the most talked about companies in sports broadcasting at the moment. So it should be interesting to tune in for that one. Yeah, and the, the global me, service, I think, is something that's that's going to be uh, fascinating to follow. Charlie? I, I, I would love to tune into – oh, I, I am going to tune into Sports Pro uh, Sport Pro's own um, Nick Meacham on the, the role of big tech in sports. Um, I'm, I'm interested to understand which – which platforms he's going to be digging into. It's a world I inhabit quite um, quite a lot. And, uh, yeah, interested if he covers sort of some of the more niche ones, the, the Shopify's, the the Roku's, the um, the likes of some of the Asian platforms as well. Looking forward to that session. Yeah, yeah, we shall, we shall see. We shall see where he takes us. 
Uh, Nick Meacham really bestriding day two because he's also doing a session that I would pick out, which is uh, with Andrew Georgiou from Discovery and Neurosport. I think they have a similar to, to Zone, a very interesting story uh, to tell and will be influential in their own way in the next few years. But um, we will be reviewing that tomorrow with Tom Bassam and Min Almoda uh, right here on the, in the virtual podcast booth. But um, thank you to all of you for joining us for now. Thanks to everyone for listening at home. Uh, thanks for your questions. Thank you to Sam Karp. Cheers, Owen. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, thank you to Charlie Beale. Yes, thanks both of you for having us. And uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 